Deeper Than Easy Answers is the subject of tape number six in our series on personal temptation. Matthew chapter four verses one through eleven is Dr. Hunter's text, and from the New American Standard it reads as follows. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted forty days and forty nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him into the holy city, and he had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will give his angels charge concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, On the other hand it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things will I give you, if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. And now let's join Dr. Joel Hunter for his message, Deeper Than Easy Answers. To look at a theme that said, Faith must be more than practical. It must be deeper than just being useful. That truth is deeper than just being useful. If you have your scriptures with you, uh, I'd like for you to turn with me to the fourth chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. And we will see, as we continue to examine the temptation to simply use religion to provide ourselves with relief or a step up, I'd like for you to see that the first temptation Jesus ever faced in his ministry was just exactly that temptation from Satan when Satan came to him in the desert and said, you know, I think I've got something that will work for you here. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted, uh, Greek tested, by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came to him and said to him, If you're the Son of God, command these stones become bread. Now, let me pause here for a second and, and tell you not to think that the temptation here is for Jesus simply to feed his own hunger. Those of you who have fasted for lengthy periods of time will know that after a while, you, you're aware that you're hungry, but it's not the driving preoccupation of your consciousness. That's the good of fasting, by the way, so that you can pay attention uh, specifically to the Lord and not to food all the time. So as where Jesus is hungry and he may feel the effects of hunger, when Satan comes to him and suggests bread, he's not just concentrating on his own appetite. No, the temptation is give the people bread and they'll follow you. This is a technique to gain a large audience. But he, meaning Jesus, answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. That is, I'm more concerned that they get the real bread. That they find something more valuable to them than just what is practical for the moment. 
Then the devil took him to the holy city. And he had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will give His angels charge concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And he said to him, on the other hand, It is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan. For it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. There are probably a thousand messages in that particular scripture. Let me just scratch the surface, just preach one of them. There is a sense in which Satan comes to us and gives us the temptation of taking the easy, practical step, even to do what is right. Even to do what is right. And there is a temptation that we think that that will be our answer. We all have the potential within us to want to just go for the easy stuff. Uh, Aldous Huxley, who was a a philosopher agnostic at the beginning of this century, first said, and then Huey Lewis in the news said after him, I want a new drug. There was a song that followed his philosophy, his hope. It said, you know, there has to be some sort of drug, some non-toxic chemical that can make us feel loved and and can make us um, uh, feel good and be happy. He said, if I had a million dollars, I would pour all of that money into researching that drug because if we could discover that drug, we would certainly live in paradise. There is that tendency in all of us to think, well, it's just a matter of getting the right drug, getting the right answer. It may not be chemical. It may be... uh, uh, Scientific. It's just the right technique. Uh, may not even be scientific. It may be spiritual. Getting the right how-to book about Christianity. Getting the right how-to book about being a parent. You know, this is Father's Day weekend. Um, I watched uh, Pastor Dick help dedicate babies last night. And I was thinking to myself, boy, I hope they know that this just is a right step, but just a step in the raising of those children. Raising of children has very little to do with technique. has everything to do with pouring your life into those kids. has very little to do with having the right answer. has everything to do with providing the right example. has very little to do with even how many mistakes or non-mistakes you make in parenting has everything to do with falling flat on your face before God every day and saying, oh God, you raise these kids. I can't. You see, parenthood and being a husband and a wife and being a Christian is much deeper than technique. Satan would come to us and say, well, if you just have the right way. I get to psychology today kind of as a... As as other people get comic books, I, I kind of am entertained by 
by this. And, and this recent issue is how to be happy. And there are seven steps to be happy. Now, I can't remember them all. You would know them all. They're just common sense things. And if people could do them, they probably would be a little bit better off than they are. Um, first one is to cherish the moment. Um, second one is to control your time better. Um, third, act happy. Uh, fourth, uh, I think, is to uh, um, challenge yourself. The fifth one, I think, is to uh, 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 join a movement of some sort. Uh, sixth, uh, develop closer relationships. Now, there's a novel idea for you. And the seventh one, take care of your soul. And it has this little paragraph afterwards. It says, you know, it says, people who say that their faith is the main thing in their life seem to, on our happiness scale, be twice as happy as anybody else. <laughs> Seems like, it says, they can grow, go through crises much better and they get less depressed. And, and then the last paragraph, just kill me. Last paragraph is, you know, uh, if for no other reason than practical purposes, maybe we ought to try religion in order to get happy. Well, you know what? That is a perfect example of how the world approaches religion. I want something that will do me some good. And it's just that kind of religion that will make you end up empty. Because faith is not a how-to thing. Faith is a give-all, give-your-life thing. It's a risk just like love is. But... Christians can get caught up in these technique kind of things. Live their life by list. Think if I only have the right behavior or the right attitude or the right this or the right that, that I'll be a good Christian. When really, that results in a great deal of emptiness. It's very shallow. I was telling uh, what I was going to preach about to Vernon uh, uh, a couple of weeks ago. He said, you know, I just heard one of our own kids come back from uh, college, Liz Dowd, and, and she was kind of telling me that when she got to college, her, her faith wasn't quite working for her, you know, and what she did about it. And I said, do you think if she were to tell that to somebody like Connie, which is exactly what she did, she'd let us tape it and let everybody hear that? Because it's a great example of what I'm talking about. And she did. So let us just give you the example, one more example of how just that shallow kind of stuff uh, doesn't work for very long or doesn't work ultimately. I've been attending Northland for about five years now, and about two and a half years ago, I rededicated my life to the Lord because I felt that it was necessary that I really make Christ the center of my life. And I really wanted to know what the Lord wanted out of me as a Christian. And so I began to pray more and study His Word to try and find out what His plan was for my life and, and how I could just serve Him better. And I've just spent a year at college at... Um, Stanford University in Birmingham, Alabama, and um, it was amazing what God showed me through that time at school and how he really worked in my life so that I could get to know him better and, and serve him better. And I, had, I had been spending really good time with the Lord, but I had come to the point in my walk with Christ where there was just something missing. There was just something wasn't right because every time I'd go through my prayers, I, you know, I'd have a certain pattern or way of doing it. You know, I'd, I'd pray them first, and you know, then I'd confess my sin, and then I'd thank Him, and, and so on from there. But every time I went to confess my sin to the Lord, I couldn't ever think of anything that I'd done wrong. And 
it really started to bother me because I knew that I wasn't perfect. I knew there had to be sin in my life. And I go through my little Christian checklist. You know, I know I haven't cheated today. I don't, I don't think I've lied today. I know I haven't stolen anything. You know, and, and, and it started to bother me. So one day when I was praying, I, I, this verse on my door really caught my eye. I'd never noticed it before, but um, it's Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. And it says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test my thoughts. Point out anything you find in me that makes you sad. And lead me along your path of everlasting life. So I started to pray that a few times, just whenever I looked up at my door. And it was amazing what God showed me. Sin that was actually in my life that I just become numb to from all the years of habit or whatever. And just attitudes that were not of Him. For example, there's a really good friend of mine at school that... She's, I just think she's an awesome Christian. I really admire her walk with Christ. However, lately, she was going through a hard time, and she'd really been turned off from church, and she'd started dating an ex-boyfriend of hers that really wasn't good for her. And instead of being there for her and just listening to her and being a caring friend, I would condemn her and say mean things towards her and to let her know that I didn't approve, that she wasn't living up to the standard that I had for her. And through her and through other people, I've realized that I do have a very condemning attitude at times. And I've had to go to apologize to many people. And it was very eye-opening and at times overwhelming, the stuff that's in my life that I didn't realize that definitely was not like Christ. And I wanted just to be able to get that out of my life because it was an example of who Christ was. It was awful and gross and it was scary how much stuff was there that I didn't realize. And the other day when I was having my devotional, this verse really stuck out to me. And it's Psalm 30, verse 5, and it says, For his anger is but for a moment. His favor is for life. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. And I know that the time is going to be difficult as I search my heart. But I know that I'm at a new step in my walk with Christ. And that joy is going to come in the morning. You see how, how difficult, how much of a price you need to pay to go to the next step. It's not bad to want to be good. But goodness does not equal compassion. It's not bad to want to clean up your life. But cleaning up your life is not the same thing as pouring it out. And when Satan came to Jesus and said, Think I've got a way that you can attract people to you. Jesus knew immediately that that way, which would be a short-term solution, was not a long-term answer. And we have a whole society of people who are having real difficulty telling the difference between short-term solutions and long-term answers, between relief and cure. We have a whole society that is dealing with addictions of different forms. You know what addiction is? It's just trying a short-term relief form over and over and over again, knowing all the time that you're getting deeper in trouble by sticking to the short-term relief. It's trying to live life by technique, by a substitute 
rather than by depth that Christ calls us to. We have a whole society that believes that the techniques or the technology that is developing is going to somehow rescue us when the technology itself can become the problem. I don't know how many of you have seen Jurassic Park. Some, yeah. Well, I'd recommend it for those of you who have a stomach for gore because it is a tremendously symbolic movie. Probably more than it intends to be. But it is essentially built around the theme of the shallowness of modern man that believes that he can actually take history and use it for his own amusement and profit. That believes that we can somehow cordon off what we think will work for us or for a certain segment and not let it infect or bleed over into the rest of the world. That believes that we can be entertained and not harmed when we simply give ourselves to entertainment. Friends, one of the main threats to our Christian walk today is to build ourselves into a faith that entertains and that rewards for a moment, but leaves no relationship with Jesus Christ in the long run. You know, we're living in a society that is going to have a tremendous option that we've never had before. And that is literally the option to build our own illusory world. I'm talking about virtual reality. The technology is coming, and many of you have been studying this. The technology is coming, and from in seven to ten years will probably be here. That you will have the option in your living room to not only dial up whatever movie you want at any given time, but to determine how it ends. You will not only be able to do that, but you will be able to uh, put on some apparatus, and through what they are terming right now video telephony, you will be able to participate in designing whatever scenario of virtual reality you want. So much so that if you're not firmly grounded in what is very real, what is realistic will begin to become planted in your mind that that is reality. You talk about a temptation. When Satan came in Genesis 3, what did he tell Adam and Eve? Oh, your eyes will be opened. And you will become like God. Will you be able to be like God, creating your own world, not having to live in world as it is? As it is it's going to be a huge temptation. How will you be able to cope with that kind of temptation? Only by having a deep relationship with Christ, with what is real. And not being satisfied with technique or what is realistic. Only by being able to tell the difference because you've spent the time with the Lord. But you see those techniques, if we live in them long enough, if we live in the shallow waters long enough, they become the problem. We become addicted to them. When Christ did give bread to people, you can read this in John chapter 6. When when Christ did give bread to the people because he had compassion on them, thousands were coming. And the the rest of the Gospels say, and Jesus had compassion on the multitude, so he fed the multitude. 
out of a few loaves and fishes. What happened was they never got past that technique. By the te- it, 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 in John 6, 5, it says he feeds the multitude. In John 6, 26 and 27, they're still coming to him for more bread. Ah, oh, we got somebody who will give us stuff, see? Give us the bread. Give us the healing. Give us the whatever. Jesus looks at him and says, you're coming to me not because you want true spirituality, but because you were fed by the loaves. He looks at him and he says, don't labor for that which perishes. See, this short-term stuff only sticks around for as long as your appetite is satisfied, and then you need to produce it again. Don't labor for that which perishes. Labor for the bread that is unto, unto eternal life. And he says, I'm that bread. But they're so hung up with the techniques, with the spectacularism, with the food, with the relief of their hunger, with whatever they want practically done in their life, that they can't make the transition to seeing who Christ really is. And one of the saddest verses in all of the Bible, in the 66th verse of that 6th chapter, you can remember it, John 6, 6, 6, it says... And they wandered away from him because they could not understand such a saying. Jesus looked at his disciples who had lived with him, who had given their lives to him. And he said, are you going to go away too? And his disciples looked at him and said, where would we go? No one has the answer but you. You see what... The difference was the others just wanted to use Christ, but the disciples were in love with Christ. It's a huge difference. Well, let me get to the point. The point is this. We need in our lives, I know several of you right now are facing the temptation from Satan that says, you know what's practical here? This is is how you can work this deal. And you're going to rely on what is practical. It may not even be wrong. I mean, at first. But you're going to go for what is practical and what is short-term, thinking that that's going to solve the problem. And it only becomes the problem later on. So here's what I'm challenging you to do. I'm challenging you to go deep. I'm challenging you to think something through long-term. You know, when you see something years and years in advance... It helps you in more ways than one. We have always looked at our kids and said, you know, if you continue that, this is what's going to make you, that's what, that's what it's going to be like when you're a man. And we've always taught our kids that the reason that we discipline them is because we want to change the long-term effects. It's also very useful if you've blown it. You know, people who feel like they've absolutely blown their life are the people who are looking very short-term. They're right. Usually they've made a huge mistake. But in God's grace, there is always time to correct. And the more you look at the long term, the more you can look at this sin and its perspective. And the more you can say, you know what? When this is viewed through the history and the character of my life, this will be an aberration. This will not mark me. This will simply be a part of a testimony to God. It takes all of the fire and the fear out of sin. So I'm challenging you to look through the long term. It's not very American-like. I realize that. President Havel uh, of Czechoslovakia, in a very ironic moment several years ago, when Czechoslovakia had overthrown its uh, 
communist rule, came to uh, the U.S. Congress and addressed the U.S. Congress. This is, this is, again, comical. And he said, you know our problem in Czechoslovakia? And I said, what is your problem in Czechoslovakia? He said, our problem is that we have not yet learned to put morality above... Can't you see this? Morality above politics or science or economics. And here's all our congressmen standing there going, oh, that's a real problem. You poor, poor people. What horrible irony when we have a nation have not yet learned to think beyond what is politically expedient or economically profitable. I'm challenging us all to the long run with Christ. I'm challenging us as a body. Stick with us for years and years and years. You know your staff here? We've made a commitment to each other that we're hoping and praying God has us together for a lifetime. Because we don't believe anything solid or deep can be built in a few years. And if a relationship can't be built like that, how can a church be built like that? Stick around and go for the long and go for the deep. Go for the answers that will outlast your life instead of the life that will outlast your answers. Some time ago, Robert Oppenheimer, Dr. Robert Oppenheimer, one of the main developers of the atom bomb. This is 20, 30 years ago. When Congress got wind of what a wonderful, powerful weapon this was, they called this renowned German physicist into a subcommittee and they were questioning him about this weapon. And the longer they talked about it, the longer it dawned on them or it began to dawn on them that, you know what, this horrible weapon could actually get into enemy hands. It's not just us that will have this long term. It will be other people who will also discover this. And so their immediate question out of self-protection was this. Is there any defense against this powerful weapon? And Dr. Oppenheimer looked at him and said, Sure. And they breathed a sigh of relief and they said... Good. What is it? And he looked at him and he said, Peace. You see, the defense against what can destroy is not simple. It's deep. C.S. Lewis said once in his sermon, Weight of Glory, he said the main virtue that you would, if you took... 20 Christians today and you ask them what is the chief virtue of life they would come up with this unselfishness and that's quite a virtue isn't it he said the problem is that if you would have taken Christians two 20 centuries ago and asked them what the chief virtue is he would have said love there's a myriad a gargantuan a quantum Difference between simply being unselfish and actually loving somebody. Go for the deep. Go for the long. Go for the tough. Because it requires God. And God would not call you to anything that does not require Him.
pray with me. God, help us to see more than just what our eyes see. Help us, along with 2 Corinthians 4.18, to see, focus not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, because what is seen is temporal and what is unseen is eternal. Give us eyes for that unseen. Help us, Lord God, to stand or fall not on what works, but on You. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.